0: We are live. It's exciting.
1: <laughs> this is very exciting. I think we should start this off by cheersing.
0: We should cheers to episode, I guess you could call this episode zero.
1: Episode zero. Here we go. Cheers.
0: I don't know if you can hear the cheers. Did you hear the clink? Hold but, on, I
1: can artificially do it.
0: Oh, there we go. <laughs> and, and me.
1: <laughs> cheers to day day zero, day one of your podcast and sharing a very important story and and background of how you came to be. So this is going to be exciting. How I came to be. This is going to be a good one.
0: (laughs) Oh, heavens. Sorry about that. (laughs) I would say, first of all, thank you for supporting this. I know that it's different for me. It's not something that I would normally sit here and say. It's something that I've endeavored my life to do, but talking seems to come easy. I'm hoping that a podcast will allow for me to have an opinion or at least a perspective on things and also bring on, you know, interesting guests who have great stories and allow for an opportunity for people to also share their stories. A big part of this, I guess, first episode is going to be driven uh, by vulnerability. So it's about opening up and sharing stories, stories that I've always been okay to give. I feel like with my friends and my family or in relationships, like I was able to tell you basically everything you're going to hear today, but I've never really thought about how this would go if I told the story and then published it for the entire world to potentially hear. So it's a bit nerve wracking.
1: I get the, I get the nerve wrackingness of this endeavor. Your story is A really unique one in that you come from a very rocky beginning and where you are now is just so you know incredibly polarizing from where you had started so I think it's just a really great story to tell and it's also influential for people to hear the struggles and how you came to be and where you are now and the paths you've taken, the paths you could have easily taken to lead you down a very different road, a darker road. I think that you have a really great story to tell and it's going to be very inspiring for people to hear whether you're struggling, whether you're not struggling. I think that you have some good life experience to share with the world.
0: It's funny that you say that because that's probably the hardest part about this whole endeavor is that even though I feel like I have a story that might help and benefit, you know, specific uh, groups of people, I've never felt like my story has ever been important enough or unique enough to really share. But I, I know even if it impacts one person positively and it gives one person hope, that would be enough for me. I would shut down shop and be totally happy.
1: Yeah, I agree. I think that if it gives people hope and it gives people kind of an idea of how to get out, or you know how to begin their life, I think that's even if you can influence or help even one person, that could mean the world or change someone's world. That's a pretty big thing to be able to, to do.
0: I couldn't agree more. So I thought obviously long and hard about the formatting of this kind of conversation and, and being very green and vanilla to podcasts. I wanted to try my best to I try to flow with some sort of like storyline. So obviously I'm going to try and start at the beginning and then just go from there. And hopefully this doesn't turn out to be a three hour podcast, but we typically have great conversations and you're thought provoking and ask good questions. So I hope that we'll be able to get through this in a reasonable amount of time. And then after editing, hopefully it's not a snooze fest for people.
1: (laughs) I think that the story is going to have lots of highs and lows. It's going to (coughs) start off maybe a little, you're going to go walk through a variety of emotions while you're listening to to Chris's story. There's going to be some laughs and some sadness and maybe some shocking things, but there's going to be hope and happiness and some laughter throughout this, throughout this cast. I think we've got a good mix here.
0: Without further ado. So I was born.
1: Day one.
0: (laughs) That's probably a good place to start. And I remember looking in my, I remember looking in one of my photo albums that my mother put together a long time ago. I still have it somewhere. And uh, it's a really weird photo. It's like on the first or second page. And it's me having a hernia when I was like, I don't even know, months old, maybe six months to a year old. I don't know why I have a picture. No, no, a hernia, a lower abdominal surgical uh, procedure was, was performed probably because I either couldn't poop or I was just, (laughs) (laughs) or I don't know. Maybe I was just like my mother. I'm pretty sure if you ever asked her, she would probably be the first person to tell you that my brother and I were obnoxious and a very difficult pair of children to take care of. So I would not be surprised if I was doing something stupid at one <laughs> year old and gave myself a hernia. Nice. <laughs> <clears throat> Yeah. So it's weird that I have this photo. That's one of my first pages or one of my first photos on my photo album. Anyways, it's crazy, but probably it's probably a good way to start off by telling you that me and my brother were crazy and he's three years younger than me. And so he came along when I was about three and then he obviously was a baby for a little bit. And then by the time I was five or six years old, we were totally causing the most amount of shit you could ever cause. I'm pretty sure there were many times where we were climbing up on cupboards and going through upper cupboards get cookies that mom thought would be great if they were hidden in the top shelf well you
1: know what that's like typical kid stuff like that's not even like crazy
0: that's true but i probably should have preempted that with my mother was single at that at that specific time my father happened to go away with the military to germany and i think my mom was supposed to go but then something happened and She didn't end up going and so he left and he was gone for a few years, I think. And so she was left back home with the two boys who were just rambunctious and dad not there to maybe do a little extra ass tanning. To reel them in. (laughs) Exactly. So it was probably not the easiest for her. Yeah. When I was five or six years old and my brother and I are getting up early, we don't even need keys for a car. We're jumping in a car and we're playing around with shift knobs and we're doing whatever we're doing and next thing you know... The car starts rolling backwards, the driver's side door hits a tree, rips the door off almost. We're doing stupid shit, I'm telling you. If I was my mom, I probably would have gave us up for adoption. It was pretty bad. I'm pretty sure I would have to have her on the show to find out exactly what she felt. But I think that's a probably fair assumption that it was probably a difficult one for her. And I think it got to the point where it was probably so difficult for her that it may not have been overly enjoyable as kids either. Having a little bit of a breakup in the family like that and having to deal with that and not having your dad around and those kinds of things. And for me, being probably three or four years old when he left, I I obviously had an attachment with him where my brother didn't and then by the time he came back they were separated and uh, he lived nearby and i remember I, i vaguely remember sitting on a i believe it was a bunk bed and my mother asking me if i wanted to go live with my dad and i'm pretty sure i broke her heart the day that day when i told her that i did
1: like how old were you six okay
0: yeah i was six years old and i that's probably why i vaguely remember that it's it's always hard to remember In great detail things that kind of happen before six but things that are important or impactful you'll remember those things and without getting into too many details i do have some goods and bads that i remember before six but
1: that's a really young age to be put in the position of asking do you want to live with me or do you want to live with your father that's that's uh it's a lot
0: it is and i'm not sure if she asked me because she thought she knew the answer And I'm not sure if she thought that the answer was going to be, yes, I want to go live with my dad or no, I want to stay with her. But regardless, I ended up saying that and I I guess she called my father and my dad came and picked me up. And the next thing you knew, I was living in Bayside with my, my dad in a small little house and his girlfriend. And that was at six. And I remember lots of little things between, you know, six and 12 years old. And I remember living and staying with my uncle Clay and his wife and kids. And I remember... Getting in a fight with Ben uh, a few times and both my dad and my, my uncle Clay are like, boys, I think you need to settle this outside. By the way, it's got a little bit of a sprinkle outside. So the grass might be wet, but you guys will figure it out. I and, like that. And, so like
1: was <laughs> Ben's the same age as you? I was like, he's the same age as you at that point. He's yeah. He's just one year older than okay. me. Okay.
0: Yeah. I think he's 13 months older than me.
1: I like that. You know, that raw, like. Boys, go figure it out outside. I like that,
0: yeah, and it was actually not a bad thing. And I, I, to this day, it's probably why I feel so close to Ben, even though we don't have the closest of relationships. I've always been I've always looked at him as like uh, another brother. It's been great living with him and seeing the things he's gone through, which might be for another podcast uh, episode, but he's got his life story, and it's crazy, too. and i'm I'd love to have have him an opportunity to say stuff about that. But I remember I do remember living there, and I remember. I remember going through a fight with him in the grass. He won, unfortunately, <laughs> but it, when I say he won and we were like eight and nine, that honestly- looked That means probably, he sat on you and prob- you couldn't yeah. get up. <laughs> it probably looked like two wet noodles running around and there <laughs> trying to like, I don't know, figure themselves out, it was weird, but it was good. And I think that brought us closer together if anything. And so, yeah, my dad has always been more of a friend. And uh, even when, you know, I went to live with him at six, I, I I remember living with him, but never really feeling like I was living with my father. It was more like I was living with a buddy and that, that carried on for years. And, and, uh, and then he's got a, he's got a big long side story that I could probably go on forever. But the short part of that is I'm sure I was a bit of a handful to deal with when I was in and around the 10, 11 years old. And he, I think, was going to school for social work. He was that loyalist. And he was uh, living with one of his best friends, Keith, who he was a good, he was a good guy. And we were living in Belleville and... He, I think he, I I don't know, I don't think I was perceptive enough to really understand what he was going through, but I think it was tough for him. And I know he started drinking more and he was in situations where he probably shouldn't have been intoxicated. And he was, and uh, it's fine because he lived, he was at his home, so it was okay. But then I remember uh, one day he came home and this probably just compounded over months or years. It's hard to, it's hard to perceive time at this point, uh, 30 years ago. But he, he was not happy with something and he was, I think he was, had been drinking and he had asked me to make dinner or something and being 11 years old, I think the only thing I even knew how to remotely make was craft dinner. I think I said no. I don't know why, but I think I said no. And he got fired up, scared me upstairs. We had some altercations. It was very challenging both emotionally and physically to go through that situation. And I remember the weekend before all of this happened, he had started with Children's Aid Society doing a parent relief program. So the weekend before this happened, I had actually spent a weekend at a a short-term foster home. I'll get into that more after, but It was, uh, it was, it was a good break for him, I thought. And then the next week happens and this altercation happens. And then I remember being upstairs in our shared bedroom and I called the children's aid society because there was a card on his bedside table where it was like a headboard of a used to be water bed type headboard. And I remember seeing that there and I picked up the phone and I called them and and they came and they brought me away because the situation was, it was difficult and I don't think it ever turned around from there. And I don't know if he ever really wanted it to turn around from there. Like I said, he was always like a a friend, not a dad. So I think that relieved him, but it was also really difficult. So I went to go live in a foster home with Pat and Jim, who were to this day instrumental in changing my life, the beginning part of my life changing. And and then I ended up in a group home and I lived there until I was about 16.
1: So basically from 11 to 16, you were in in a group home or 12.
0: Yeah. 12. It was just before I was 12. So I think it was like somewhere like around November or December. I went to, into the foster home. I was there for about six months and then they put me into a temporary foster home to this day. I cannot believe I remember their name, but it was the Shaps and they lived in Foxborough and they had a little pig farm and it was, it was pretty interesting and I was there for about 30 days.
1: So I think you, you, you know, I think there's an important piece to that, that, we should probably focus on and that was, you know, you were eleven years old, there was an altercation. It sounded like there was maybe one altercation that got potentially bad when he came home intoxicated. And at eleven years old, I don't think it's unusual. I think all of us have had some type of scary moment with either mom or dad saying wait <laughs> your dad gets home and you run upstairs and you can hear your dad like shut the the car door in the in the driveway and then come in and then you can hear him walking up the stairs and you're like, Oh god, I'm in trouble.
0: That's awfully but, specific.
1: Yeah, you know, it's very specific. <laughs> but like what what made you believe at 11, this was, I needed help. This isn't normal.
0: I was afraid. And par- probably part of this storytelling is how difficult some situations might be. And I remember a couple of things happening. And basically the first thing was he came up, he threatened to throw me out of a second floor window. I don't think he ever would have. But I think I was probably not listening or doing something over a period of time. And he felt as though he was probably at a breaking point. And those threats, while may, you know, maybe from an adult's perspective are empty and not going to be anything. I was terrified. I remember uh, opening up the window a little bit and it was after school. So my next door neighbor was outside playing in the front and I tried to get her attention and ask her to go get her mom and see if her mom could help me. And her mom said that she didn't believe me. And so that was difficult and then maybe that summer before so I think this was I can't remember exactly but I think this was like November December but I remember that summer before he had bought a pellet gun and it was pretty cool like you put these little pellets in you cock it like 10 times and then you can shoot it and it won't go terribly far but it was fun we would go out to the bush and he would show me how to shoot and that was pretty cool but I, I when you're 11 you don't realize how insignificant a pellet gun is you think it's more like a gun. You don't, your perception is a little different. And I remember him again, very likely just loosely intimidating me, but I remember hearing it come out and being pumped and I was terrified, absolutely terrified. And looking back, I know better, but it's like in those moments, you're so afraid. And all you think about is how do I survive this moment? Yeah. How do I get out of this moment? I am trapped. I'm upstairs. I can't go past him. I've got all the way down the stairs. I've got around the corner. He's sitting there in the living room. I have no way out. The yeah. only way out is out the window.
1: And to an 11-year-old, like, I mean, when, especially if he's intoxicated and there's it's heated and he has a pellet gun, regardless if he's if you hear that sound of him, like, cocking you back, it's not like you're sitting there thinking, that's not going to kill me. You're just in a moment of sheer fear and panic. Hopelessness. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So I remember, to this day, I remember seeing the card and picking it up and talking to the Children's Aid Society after hours person. And the oddest part to this day, I have no idea why they did this, but they were like, do you think you could put me on hold? Like, they didn't really have hold back then. It was more like, you know, get your father to maybe get on the phone. And I remember being even more terrified of that, thinking to myself, there's absolutely nothing stopping him from hanging up the phone. And doing whatever it is I thought he might do.
1: And being even more upset that you ended up calling someone.
0: Yeah. So that was like probably a really bad situation for them to do. But thankfully, it was Belleville. And thankfully, it doesn't take very long for the Children's Aid or the police to get there. I didn't live very far from the police station. They had him on the phone. I got him, I yelled downstairs, asked him, you know, I said, there's somebody on the phone. He talked on the phone. I could hear nothing. And then the Children's Aid Society and the police showed up. The police actually asked me if I wanted to charge him. I was 11 years old and they probably shouldn't have asked me that, but I think it was more of an opinion, not do you want to criminally charge this person? It was more like, this is a difficult situation for you. How do you feel? Do you want us to do something about it? And there's probably a reason why they do that. And by law, I don't think I'm able to charge someone under that age. So I, but I think it was more of a conversation probably to make me feel better about what was happening. And then they took me away in, in custody and brought me to the it was actually, so it was the group home that I went to was the same one from the parent relief. And I was there for about six months.
1: And what happened to your dad? Did he just get, from what you know, did he just get a talking to you? He didn't.
0: I think he rebounded well. I'm not sure. And that's not a conversation I've ever had, regardless of what my relationship with him is like now. I hope this you know conversation doesn't deteriorate that relationship. Not that it's super strong, and not that we see each other all the time or even talk, but I, I don't want it to, um, I don't want this conversation to hurt either my mother or my father or my brother, but this is raw to the core information that I think that there are people out there that are much like me in their, in their adolescence and in childhood and that are... I don't know if they're ever going to hear this, but maybe in their teenager years, they might hear this and they might hear about how they've gone through similar things and maybe this will help.
1: Yeah. And I think that not to, I don't think, I think you telling what happened isn't to make them feel bad it, because people, I, I don't want to say it like this, but we it's hard to judge parents because they came in and were trying their best and they failed in some arenas and they probably look back and think, shit, I could have done this differently. I shouldn't have been like this. I should have done this. Maybe I should have spent more time with my children, but all of that, like hindsight is twenty twenty, and neglect and abuse are very like very different things. Um, but now you can think back at your dad and, I think with him, it sounds like you have since forgiven his misguidance and his treatment. And I think that you see him as someone that probably just lost his way. Yeah.
0: And it, it's sad that I, I can't really say that I've ever really truly gotten to know my father to any kind of degree of, of intimacy, like deep intimacy to know what he's gone through and, and what he's done in his life and those kinds of things. But I do know that I, I do believe that he was capable and destined for so much more. And I do think that incident probably derailed him some and his potential was just never really truly met. Cause he's, he's a good guy. He, I think he genuinely cares about other people. And I think he wanted to be a social worker so that he could help other people. He's a smart guy when it comes to psychology and sociology, he gets those things. I think that incident is what probably, yeah, sidetracked all that. Mm-hmm. And that's tough. That's tough. But at the end of the day, that's, those are his consequences. Those were his actions. You lay in the bed you make yeah. and it is what it is.
1: And you know what? So you end up in a group home. Yeah. You're there for how long?
0: So the first group home was six months and it was with Pat and Jim. I'm not going to say the last names for obvious reasons, but... They were amazing. They had a home, uh, a couple. They had two of their own boys. They had a couple of other foster kids. They were more of like a mid, middle length kind of place. They weren't for short term, really, and they weren't for long term. But their house was fantastic. It was out in Sterling. They had they had a, a farm, a little farm with a goat and a bull and those kinds of things. So it was really fun being a kid and in being there. It was nice. I went to Sterling Elementary, I guess at that point because I was in grade six, I think. So I went to Sterling for a little bit, met some people who I still know to this day. And, and that was about six months. And then temporarily I went to this other place called, it was with the Shaps, that's their name. And they had a pig farm in Foxborough. So I was there for about a month. And that while I was there, it was basically while they were just, I think, finishing up and getting onboarded with this new group home that they built right beside the Children's Aid Society in Belleville, a nice little house. They gutted it and they made like a seven bedroom place that kids could hold kids, all ages and boys and girls and whatever. And that's what I ended up moving into. I moved into that maybe, maybe three or four months before my 12th birthday.
1: What was your experience in the group home?
0: Wow. That's probably a whole episode on its own, but for the interest of time on this one, I will say that it was probably the single most important Time of my life. I would hate to say that this incident that happened with my dad and I came at the best and most opportune time because I don't want to make it sound like you know, I'm thankful for that oppor- that that happening. But I feel like I feel like being in that home gave me structure, gave me something that felt close to a family. And you know, there's funding there to take care of kids, and they buy you clothes, they make sure you're fed, and they you're cooking, you're cleaning, they're teaching you these things, and. You create these relationships with the staff because they're there for years and you create relationships with the kids because you're there for years and some come some go but it all stays the same i learned how i learned about hockey i started playing hockey you know i was going to i was going to elementary school i went to our lady of fatima i was there for grade basically grade seven and grade eight and then went to nicholson high school was a big old cluster F and, and I was all over the place with high school, but the, but the group home was great. And I remember still to this day, Glenn Stevenson, who was my, he was my primary support person. And he was basically like the, the dad I never had and he was so good with me and he was good at hockey. So he did, taught us a lot about hockey and stuff too. So that was great. And then the tail end of that, that time period ended not so well. So around 15, and a half somewhere around 15 like the winter of my 15 going on 16 i caught one of the kids in the group home stealing my cards and trying to trade them with other kids in the house and i remember losing my absolute mind and threatened and kicked the fridge and and then left and i was too young to leave i ended up at the arcade downtown and the police came and got me and i got charged with a couple of offenses for threatening uh, death threats and mischief, punching the fridge and those kinds of things. And that was a really difficult and challenging time considering things were going relatively well. And then one of the charges got dropped, but the other two stuck. I did two years or two months of dead time at Corbyville. It's like an open custody place for juveniles. And I did a little bit of, dead, they call it dead time. Dead time is the time that you do before you're actually convicted of your crime and then given a sentence. And And so I did two months of dead time and then they basically said, you're good, that your time served. For the next three months, you're not able to go back to that group home because that kid's still there. So we're going to send you somewhere else. And then Children's Aids uh, decided to send me to, can't remember the name of the place, but it's like up by, it's up by Tweed. And it was like a boys and girls home split, a horseshoe. And they had like probably 15, 20 kids split between boys and girls and upper and lower. And it was crazy. I got through that. And then basically when I turned 16, I hitchhiked home. <laughs> Literally the morning I turned 16.
1: That's crazy. Yeah. Didn't you say that when you were in the group home, they would have these, um, like the bus would actually take the group home, group home children to, to the school?
0: It was like a bus, but it was actually just a giant van. It was a 12-seater van.
1: And I asked that because I'm like, did, did the kids at school know where that van was coming from that was on floating like a bunch of kids? Like, were you labeled the kids from the group home?
0: Yeah, you know what's funny? I actually don't. I remember getting dropped off a couple of times in the red van, and I always remember the red van as being like, It's pretty obvious it's the group home van because they also weren't even nice enough to tint the windows. So we were like fishbowl and it was embarrassing, but at the same time, you just kind of got used to it. We weren't bad kids and we never really had a bad connotation with us. So it was like not a terrible thing, but they probably could have been a little bit more thoughtful in that regard.
1: Okay. I just wondered, I was like, did, did that create a stigma for you and make it a bit more difficult when you're in school? But it doesn't sound like it.
0: Not really. I can't I I can speak for the other kids, but I can tell you that like for the most part, nobody ever really said anything. Okay. I never really got teased for anything like that. That's yeah. Cool. And I remember I was getting dropped off at Fatima from the van, but I don't remember Nicholson being dropped off and I don't think I walked. I might've taken a bus. I just don't remember at all.
1: Okay. So then you get, you get charged and mm. you're in a, I guess it's a juvenile detention center. I'm assuming that's this or thing that you're in.
0: Open custody is more like, it's more like, it's more like a group home that's a little bit more attentive to security.
1: Okay. So then how long were you there for?
0: About two months.
1: Two months. Okay, then what happens after that?
0: Actually, an interesting story about when I was there, I actually just remembered. I was on such good behavior that they actually asked me a favor to see if I would go to, I don't know if they call it a maximum security juvenile center, but they had a high profile child that was getting transferred through the corridor and they wanted to stop in Corbyville for I think like a week. So they asked me if I would be willing to volunteer to go to a maximum security juvenile place. And I think it's in, I want to say it's Workworth or something. Anyways, craziest experience, like steel doors, announcing yourself down the hallway, announcing yourself going in and out of a bathroom. You start at zero. So all the clout that I had amassed at the other place from good behavior meant nothing at this new place. So I literally started at ground zero at this new place, but they treated me well. It was such an easy place to be in because I was a good kid and so I got through that. I think it was, I want to say it was like four or five days. And then I went back to Corbyville. Okay. That was interesting. And then, yeah, like I said, I ended up in this other little home for about four or five months. And then I remember literally the morning of my birthday. I, it wasn't even like a bad place to really be. I was doing okay. They had an on-school, like on-premise school in the basement area. It was a walkout basement. We had an on-premise school. It's weird. Played a lot of outdoor hockey. It was good that way. But literally, my 16th birthday, I could have stayed because I probably could have stayed until 18. But I just, I don't know, I just was so tired of the system. I walked out to the road and put my thumb out and ended up walking most of the way, almost all the way to Tweed. And then some kind of weird story, but I ended up getting picked up just outside of Tweed, the only person who picked me up. And it was Father Macaulay from when I was at Our Lady of Fatima and Nicholson. He was the father, one of the fathers at St. Michael's Church. And to this day, I feel so bad, but he asked me if where I was going and I told him the mall and I didn't want to tell him what had happened, mostly because I just didn't want to impose. I know how people like that are. They're such good people and I just didn't want to impose. So I remember just lying to him and then I ended up walking. You
1: lied to a pastor.
0: Yeah, a full on priest.
1: The man of the robe.
0: Yeah, a full on priest.
1: Oh man.
0: <laughs> yeah. It was so it was an innocent it was an innocent lie. And if Father Macaulay is alive this to this day, and I hope he is, I have no idea. I I hope that if he ever hears this story or hears anybody tell him this story I only met him a couple of times, but he was an impressionable man who cared deeply about his faith and he cared deeply about the people that he met on a daily basis. And he was such a kind man to pull over and pick up a hitchhiker boy and like genuinely care about what's happening. But he also didn't push me. Like he didn't, he just, he dropped me off and said, good luck. And I think he just knew. So I lied to a priest.
1: You lied to a priest. <laughs> my goodness! But it, you need redemption.
0: <laughs> I think I've redeemed myself since then. I think then. so. I think so too. But, I think so. But it was innocent, and it was about survival. And I knew I was just going to try and get to my friend's house. And long story short, about that, he—I ended up walking from the mall to my buddy's house. My buddy ended up you know, setting me up with another friend and a, and a system where I was able to live on my own right immediately. I think the second, so I stayed with my friend the first night, the second night I ended up calling these people at youth hab or youth habilitation Inc in Belleville. Probably the next most critical part of my life was youth hab and this program, which I'm pretty sure I checked not very long ago, and I'm pretty sure they're still active and in, in participation of helping kids between the age of 16 and 24, I think. But absolutely pivotal pivotal in my growing up as a young adult, and this is when I decided I was going to emancipate. So I emancipated, which for those who don't know, that means that you become an adult legally before you're legally entitled to be an adult so uh, most people are an adult at 18 when you turn 18 you are held to adult standards and adult law and i requested emancipation which freed my my myself from the children's aid society at that time i you know didn't feel the same way about the children's aid society i wanted out not sure if that was the best choice looking back but at that time i'm i'm happy to say that i did it and it worked out thank at God. age 16. okay yeah pretty much it didn't take me very long because when you're 16 and you're not emancipated, then you're still under the age of 18 and you are still under the responsibility of those parties who you're responsible to. I freed them of that by requesting emancipation and it went through the courts and it was approved and it was done and everybody walked away and wiped their hands of any responsibilities or (laughs) relationships.
1: So during this time from Twelve until sixteen, you've had no contact with your brother, mom, dad.
0: I had contact, so sometimes I would see my dad, sometimes I wouldn't see my dad. Sometimes I would see my mom would come down with my brother and we'd hang out, we'd go to the park or we'd play baseball in the backyard or whatever. So there was some time spent. I would go up uh, to Toronto and hang out with my brother, and my brother was like. It was crazy. I was like fifteen years old. He was twelve, and he was the one taking me downtown from Young and from Kennedy and Eglinton. We would take the TTC together. He would take me down to Madison Square Gardens to go watch like college basketball. He would take me because I had no idea how to get there. What
1: a strange dynamic! You would, your mom would come visit you, your dad would come visit you, or you guys would talk. And at twelve to sixteen, you're in this this group home and you just wonder mom dad like what's up like why am i even here like why am i visiting here why am i not in your care although you probably at that age um maybe you got better care in in the group home than you might have might have had with mom or dad but i I can only imagine that would have been strange for you
0: at the time it didn't occur to me didn't make it didn't make any occurrence to me at all but it's interesting you bring that up because i did think to myself in the last probably six or so years when I, when was this probably six, seven years ago, I had called the children's aid society to ask for some of my records. I wanted to talk to them about some of the things that were maybe in my documentation. And I found out that, you know, I just, I think there was opportunity for me to go with my mom and it just didn't happen. I don't know deep down, you know, what happened, but I firmly believe that my mom probably felt like she couldn't do it. Mm. And I don't blame her, but yeah, I don't think she could do it. And I think that was the reason why um, I didn't stay with her.
1: But your brother did.
0: But my brother had lived with her from birth. So he moved to, to Toronto with her when she left and he had lived with her until he was 16, which is another story, but... Yeah, so I just, I don't really blame her for that. It would probably, it was thankfully she didn't because I think the opportunity for me to stay there was better for me and better for her.
1: Then we emancipate, we are free and clear, we're adults at 16 and you do what with your freedom card?
0: I get social assistance and I live on on welfare and I go to high school and it's hard, but places like Youth Hub who provide services and resources to children between 16 and 24 gave me a place to be able to stay for very cheap. I think my rent was $120 a month for a room. And that allowed me to have the other $400 of my $520 to go and spend on things like groceries and whatever. didn't have cell phones and stuff like that then. So you didn't have to worry about any of that, but you, you get a little bit of money every month. So you can buy groceries and you can get a little bit of clothes and Sometimes you get an allowance and whatever, and you, you get that, and you get going, and you get back to school. So I put myself through high school and did that while I was on social wow. assistance. Yeah.
1: Wow, wow, wow. That's crazy. It That's was hard. Crazy. It was
0: hard. Bounced around a lot. I think it took me six and a half years to finish four years of high school, mostly because I, I'm pretty sure I moved every single year, and sometimes I moved schools, sometimes I moved cities, sometimes I moved back from cities to another city. But it's really hard when you move so much and you have that instability. You really can't, you really can't finish anything, and so it becomes very difficult. So it took me about six and a half years to finish high school, but I'm proud to say that I finished high school. I got an OSSD. Yeah, it was hard. I'm telling you, it was hard. It was very hard. But I'm very happy that I did it. At that time, it was a monumental thing. And I applied to colleges, and I was really focused on doing something I loved. And I happened to fall into kind of like the sporting area because I, you know, had some. At the end of my high school, I had a lot of spare credits that I could get, and so I spent a lot of time doing co-op. And my co-ops were in uh, played against sports. The guy's name's Phil. He owned the place, and he was fantastic. And and then I was like, listen, I want to go into sports. So I applied to college, accepted a, a Course at Fleming, so I went to Peterborough and Cottage Country. I took uh, sporting goods business there that was challenging on its own and college was difficult. And probably about halfway through my second year, I started to experience, which now I look back, it was some depression. It was very difficult to stay focused. So I dropped that course, went into another one called retail marketing management, which turned out to be, it was easier, but it was also just more difficult because my my depression just continued to amplify. And then eventually finished college the best I could. I left and moved back to Belleville. I should probably say that I didn't actually get a diploma at that time. Technically, even though I did four years of college, I couldn't finish. And so I dropped out. The only amount of good news from that is that because I went to school for so long, I was actually able to obtain a business administration diploma easily with all my credits. So I still ended up graduating college. It was a very challenging thing to do, but I didn't walk away with either of the programs that I went to the school for.
1: You still walked away with your diploma. It's yours. It has your name on it. Regardless of the, the program or, or how you got it, you earned it. So that's good. That's really good. Thanks. My gosh. Okay. So that was a lot. So we went from basically learning about your childhood and the little time that you spent with your biological mom and dad to the, the time that you were given a decision at six of whether or not you wanted to stay with mom or go into assisted care and you end up from six until 11 um, actually moving with your father moving with your dad and then at 12 going into uh, foster care or group home and from there finding your way into some trouble but then getting into finding your path finding your step and then going into high school college graduating And realizing this isn't, I don't want to be defined by my past. I want to be something better and great. And I think that started from when you probably learned that somewhere along the line. Where do you think you learned that? Where you're like, listen, I can go down here or I can be this guy. What was the point where you were like, I don't want to be that. I want to be this.
0: I don't think that there was ever a given time. I think, interestingly enough, I think I've just always been risk adverse. And I think that's a a trait that I've just probably always had. And I think at one point in time, I had a therapist tell me the reason why you're always so in control of things is because you've just always had to be the one doing everything. Even in a group home, you know, even though I have people there guiding me, I'm still doing my own thing. After that, being an emancipated adult, you're doing your own thing, paying your own bills, making your own way, telling yourself to wake up and go to school at 16 years old. At
1: 16 years old, being an adult and having like your monthly check come in and finding groceries, rent money. That's nuts. Like when I think about being 16, I think about carefree. You were maybe partying, you were hanging out with your friends, you were going to the movies, you were just... Being a teenager and you were being busy being an adult and managing bills and your finances and managing yourself. That's, I think if we, that's actually, uh, that's incredible. And then, so then you go to college and you end up graduating and after you graduate, what do you do with yourself?
0: You try to find your way. So obviously, sporting goods business didn't work out. So I don't have a diploma necessarily in that. So I can't apply for all the things I wanted to do. Retail marketing management is not a re- is not a, you know, a diploma that you're carrying around. So you can't really do a lot with that. And business administration, no offense, is just like an easy breezy name that you throw on a diploma to say you finished doing college, which is great. But it becomes really difficult to go and apply yourself to opportunities. So. I moved back home and I had a couple of jobs. Basically, I worked as a bouncer. If anybody ever gets to see a picture of me, try not to laugh. I don't know how I was a bouncer. You were
1: a bouncer?
0: Yeah, I'm pretty sure. were sh- you
1: bouncing? Was it a bouncy castle?
0: F- felt like it. So <laughs> the worst part about this is, if you ever have an opportunity to bounce or know anybody who bounces, I'm pretty sure the smallest shirt they have is an extra large. I'm, well, a, me- I'm a medium. Oh. So.